to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, last weekend, the focus of our conversation was twofold. On the one hand, we spoke of what fear of the Lord really means. In contrast with fear as more commonly understood, fear of the Lord is the effect of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of divine love, which fears only to be separated from the God who one loves, regardless of the personal cost. On the other hand, we discussed how though we have now transitioned into what is termed ordinary time on the church's liturgical calendar, there is no such thing as ordinary time in our lives. Said differently, this side of eternity, there is not a moment to be considered mundane as opposed to those moments flooded with supernatural presence due to our lived relationship with God. Living in and pursuing a relationship with God means that the dynamic presence of God ought to continually pervade every moment of our lives flooding it with the radiance of his presence, and thus blurring the line, if you will, between mundane and supernatural. Thus, in both cases, it was a matter of developing our conceptual understanding of these terms as used theologically and by the church. Next week, we will return to a theme more closely related to our discussion on fear of the Lord. However, our readings for today are more closely related to our lived relationship with God, bringing into clearer focus the supernatural character of the Christian life. It seems appropriate to begin our reflection today with a strong word of caution, a caution to be kept in the fore of our minds as we make our way through what is to follow. And this caution is that the topic we propose to reflect upon today has no analogical parallel within our day-to-day lives. Therefore, the only examples we can draw from must be used by way of contrast instead of by way of comparison. This cannot be stressed enough for reasons that will be made obvious shortly. This contrast is perhaps best drawn by beginning with our second reading for today, taken from the 6th chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, for it both provides us with the proper context for our discussion, while bringing to light several motifs pertinent to it. For ease of reflection, we will first say a word on context, and then highlight three crucial details. The Apostle here is discussing the radical transformation undergone by the individual who has encountered Christ. In order to concretize this transformation, Paul draws a distinction between a life of sin and a life of grace in verses 1 and 2 of the chapter by way of rhetorical question. He writes, What then shall we say? Shall we persist in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. How can we who died to sin yet live in it? It is perhaps beneficial to further concretize the concepts of sin and grace before moving forward as they can quite often be relegated to the realm of the abstract And therefore, when we hear them, they do little to further our understanding of the lives we live. Gallons upon gallons of ink have been spilt on the topics of sin and grace, and with good reason. They are extremely difficult to understand. Christians would likely describe sin as a type of stain on one's soul, or a debt we owe to God, 
or some negative quality we possess and must find a way to rid ourselves of. There is some truth in these various ways of thinking about sin, but they ultimately miss what is most fundamental about sin. Sin most basically is separation from God. And, because our existence as creatures is thoroughly participatory, the more separated we are from God, the more sin there is, the less of us there is, the less of who we have been created to be. This separation results in a void within our very being. Sin is like the holes in Swiss cheese, or the empty portion of a glass. By way of contrast, we are fully alive, fully who we have been created to be, only to the degree to which we live in unity with God. Grace is quite often popularly spoken of as some sort of magic force or favor. We don't know how or why it works, just that it does, through the sacraments of the church. This magical force can heal all ills. This view is more problematic than the standard take on sin. For while grace is freely given, and like magic is mysterious, the sacraments of the church are not magic tricks. Certainly, they are efficacious, that is, they communicate grace by the very action being carried out. But the grace must be received on our part. We must cooperate with it. Grace builds on nature, as Aquinas says. It does not contradict or usurp it. There is a better way to understand grace that is more fundamental. Grace, put simply, is a participation in the very life of God. When we receive grace, we are filled with the life of God and become more who we have been created to be. So whereas we use the analogy of the holes in Swiss cheese or the empty portion of a glass for sin, grace is the portion that is substantially present, be it of the cheese or the fluid in the bottom of the glass. What's more, depending upon how we live our lives, at any given moment, there may be more holes or more substance. The ratio between sin and grace within us is never static. We are either moving closer to God and thus being filled with grace or moving further away and diminishing our very existence. It is this dynamic between void and substance which provides us with our context. What initiates this change? This is where our second reading for today begins. St. Paul tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here we find the first of three crucial concepts to be mentioned, baptism. Baptism initiates us into the life of God, the life of grace, providing us with a life of fullness where there had previously been a lack. The way in which baptism provides this fullness is that it brings us into unity with Christ, which is our second concept. Being united to the incarnate Son, fully human and fully divine, fills the receptacle of the particular human nature we each possess with his divinity. This unity, moreover, is so profound, Paul tells us, that by passing through the mysterious waters of baptism, we die with Christ and are raised back to new life, not only with him, but in him. Coming up from the sacred waters, the individual now has a new identity. He or she is no longer first John or Jane, but a Christian or a little Christ. Paul then exhorts the Romans to live their new identity, calling them to expel those behaviors from their lives, which would cause separation between them and God once again, as men who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. This brings us to the third point to be made here. We should not think of our moral lives as separate from our spiritual lives. Instead, our every thought and action, bar none, 
impacts the dynamic of grace and sin within our lives, bringing us further into the life of God or further from it. With this context in mind and these concepts in hand, we can now turn to our gospel reading. Today's gospel reading from the 10th chapter of Matthew can catch us off guard, as its teaching can sound a bit strange and perhaps even at odds with the greatest commandment. However, this is only if we do not attend closely to the words of our Lord. In order to see this, it may help to compare our gospel reading for today with our Lord's statement of the greatest commandment. We find a couple of different versions of this in the gospels, and these differences are important to attend to. For example, in Matthew 22, Christ says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Matthew basically adopts this format word for word from Mark. Luke's version is a bit different. Here the greatest commandment is stated by the young man who asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus approves. The young man says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Catch the difference? In Matthew we have more of what we might call an order of loves presentation, which results in two commandments, whereas in Luke, the two commandments are folded into one. Okay, so what? How does pointing out a seemingly small discrepancy like this matter? In today's gospel passage, Jesus tells us, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What our Lord says here fits perfectly with Matthew's description of the greatest commandment, as it was the version he reported that gave us two discrete commandments by which to order our loves rightly. We love God first, and then everyone else. So then what? Is Luke wrong? Did he receive bad information? Of course not. We must never chop up the word of God into bits and pieces, choosing to pay attention to some while discarding others, or setting one passage against another. Dividing the divine word of scripture in such a way would be nothing less than to attempt to divide Christ himself. The harmony of Matthew's and Luke's reporting of the greatest commandment becomes clear just a few verses later in our gospel reading for today. Jesus tells us, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. If it feels like you've heard this elsewhere, it should. Jesus says nearly the same thing in his oration on the last judgment. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. He says something very similar in his encounter with the prodigal Saul, shortly after he had approved of the death of the deacon Stephen. To the man who was to become perhaps the greatest evangelist of all time, Christ asks, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Before identifying himself as Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In both instances, those to whom Christ speaks are befuddled. When did we ever see you? When did we ever mistreat you? We have our answer. The love we are called to live is one love, exercised in an ordered manner. We are to love God above all things, the ordered portion, and to love others for the sake of God, or we might say in or with reference to God, uniting these properly ordered loves. Such was the intention from the beginning, though with the Incarnation the situation was more formally realized, as the mystery of the Incarnation itself became a testament to this order of love, uniting as it does the human and divine natures in the divine person of the Son. 
As surprising as it might sound, we have finally arrived at the difficult part of our reflection, the portion warned about earlier. It would be easy here to spiritualize away the profound reality spoken of by Jesus today. We might be tempted to say that he is merely telling us that he stands in empathetic solidarity with the human family in such a way that somehow he experiences an emotional disturbance when we are wronged, the way we are offended when someone speaks ill of somebody we deeply care about. However, this is to fundamentally misunderstand both what the church is and what it means to be a Christian a misunderstanding quite prevalent in today's society, which tends to understand the church like any other human organization. At this point, it is important to remember that we are still reading Jesus' missionary discourse, as we have been the last couple of weekends. Therefore, what he is telling us today directly impacts our activity as missionary disciples of Christ in the world, making his life known and present in all we say and do. In short, the whole of our lives is to become a living proclamation of the gospel, a living sermon. And the reason that our lives can become living proclamations of the gospel is that being a member of the church is not like being a member of any other organization. Being a Christian is not at all analogous to what it means to be a member of a sports team, the Kiwanis Club, or any other humanly devised organization. Sadly, quite often we think of the church as a charitable or goodwill organization running around doing good works for those less fortunate members of society. And while the church does do these things, and do them on a larger scale than any other collective group in society, I might add, it does not do them as an organization. Instead, these are activities of the church as an organism. For the church is a living body, both spiritual and physical, both mystical and mundane. Perhaps we would be justified to describe the church as mystically mundane. For as the body of Christ, the church has the characteristics of him who is its head, Christ, the Son of God incarnate, divine and human. The church as his body, in a truly ontological though mysterious way, lives and possesses within herself divine life historically. The church, said differently, is the extension of the incarnation through history. Therefore, whether preaching the gospel or feeding the poor, when the church does these activities, and not only does them in the name of Christ, but it is Christ who does these activities in and through it precisely because the church is his body. In order to see why this is the case more clearly, we can go back to the work of Paul, who describes the church as a living organism in several of his letters. For example, in chapter 4 of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. Similarly, in Colossians, Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the body, the church, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Notice, please, the interplay of what we might consider spiritual and bodily elements in Paul's language. The reason for this is that Paul is reflecting on the life of the church in light of the Incarnation, and such a consideration results in a very concrete understanding of what it means to be a member of the church, the body of Christ. To become a member of the church, then, does not simply change our spiritual status in some sort of mental or psychological way. It changes our ontological position in life allowing us to live the life of the resurrected Son here and now, as we saw Paul tell us 
in the passage from Romans earlier. My friends, God did not desire to save only our souls. Instead, He who created the human person as a body and soul unity at the beginning desired to redeem the entirety of His good work, the whole human person. It is for this reason that the Son took on the whole of our human nature, body and soul, in the Incarnation. Accordingly, our understanding of the Church and what it means to be a member of it must also be incarnational and not merely spiritual in the psychological or intellectual sense. To be a member of the Church, then, is not simply to assent intellectually to a creed, nor is it simply to do works of charity. The former would lean towards a spiritualizing away of the incarnational reality of the Church, while the latter would be to conceive of a body without a soul. Instead, we must live a life of concrete love because it is the love of the Son incarnate that animates us. Human love is empty, having no power to vivify, much less to resurrect what was once dead. Only the divine love which became incarnate for us, and by which the power of the Holy Spirit imparted to us at baptism lives in us, has this power. Any talk then of being spiritual may be likened to a clanging symbol. Let us not give voice to such empty talk. We ought instead to speak of being incarnational, so that we might love in the same manner. For Christ did not come to give us peace of mind in some form of spiritual solidarity. He came so that the whole person, body and soul, might experience the fullness of life in Him from now until eternity. Such life is found in the church. The church is Christ's body, manifesting His presence and accomplishing His work within history, not as a collective organization, but as an organism, living and growing unto the perfection of eternity, when all will be one with, in, and through Christ, as intended at the beginning. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.